1965, the classic band, maybe nearly oldies band, the Rolling Stones, uh, released their first number one hit in the U.S. called Satisfaction. You probably at some point heard this catchy song that was memorable, one, because of a, a great catchy tune, but also because of the substance of what it was saying. So some of the lyrics say, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. And though the song became popular decades ago, it still rings true. It resonates with us because all of us long for satisfaction within a, a wholeness, a satisfaction, though, that we search for in many places and yet often can't find it. So we try to find it in achievement. We try to find it in success. We try to find it in relationships. And perhaps for a time we can dull that longing and yet never quite fulfill it. And so people around us, we ourselves search and search and search and yet can't find satisfaction. And so it raises the question, is it actually possible is this longing for satisfaction that we have, can it actually be met in this life? And if so, where can it be found? And that's what we're going to explore this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 14. Today will be Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. And you can find it on page 820 in the Bibles we provided near you, page 820. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, just so you can see the text this morning, so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these ideas from. Uh, if you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 14. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will start in verse 13. I'll mention those verse numbers throughout our time. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles, stack of Bibles. Please just grab one of those, take it with you today. You don't have to ask permission from anybody. Please, we'd love for you to take one this morning. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Look to Jesus and experience his compassion and find lasting satisfaction. 
Look to Jesus and experience his compassion and find lasting satisfaction. And today we'll look at this text in two parts. First, we'll see compassion extended. And then second, satisfaction provided. So compassion extended, satisfaction provided. So first, we see compassion extended. Now our passage begins verse 13. It says, when Jesus heard this. So if we're reading that, we should ask, like, what, what, is, what is this referring to? And what it refers to is what we saw last week at the beginning of our passage in verse 1 and 2. So in verse 1 and 2, we saw that Herod, who is the regional authority, had begun to hear about the fame of Jesus. So word had reached them, the popularity of Jesus, the controversies likely around Jesus, the healing and the power of Jesus. So the word reaches Herod. And we saw last week that Herod immediately thought that this was John the Baptist who'd been raised from the dead. Then our passage last week in verses 3 to 12 took us back to a previous time explaining what had happened to John and how he had died. So it kind of had paused the narrative, went back explaining that. But then our text today picks up not after John has died, but after Herod has heard. So Herod has heard, Jesus now has heard that Herod knows and Herod is concerned about Jesus' growing ministry the crowds around him. So it's after that, our text picks up verse 13 and the flow of the gospel continues. And we have in our text a miracle that is the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus that's recorded in all four gospel accounts, which is really quite interesting. Of of all the miracles that we have, this is the only one besides the resurrection that's in all four. And so it, it makes us clearly see that whatever this means, it must be very important in order for all of them to want to include it in their gospel account. We're told in the passage that Jesus withdrew by boat to a desolate place on the lake. We're not told specifically why, but I can imagine based upon all that Jesus has been enduring, great crowds, much ministry to be done, people who are opposing him, that likely he wanted some, some, you know, just time to be alone, some solitude and some silence. So he withdraws to this place, but the crowds who were, you know, the, the growing interest in Jesus, they see that Jesus is going, so they go on land and they run to where Jesus is. It's not a big lake, so this is a very you know, reasonable thing for them to do. So Jesus gets off, anticipating silence and solitude, but he walks off to find a very large crowd. So what would Jesus do? He's pursuing a desire to be alone, but he shows up. And there's a big crowd. I wonder how we would respond in that situation. Some of your students, let's say you're a student and you're living in your dorm, but you have a a roommate and you're like, I just really need some silence and solitude. And so you decide the only way I can do that is is you're going to get up early one morning before others on the floor are up and go to the common area and there finally have some silence. So you do it, you set your alarm, you get up early, you make your way to the common area, just as you thought, there's no one there, everyone's asleep, you sit down, you turn on the light, you're just about ready to have some stillness, and then you hear the voice of the most talkative person on your dorm floor. And he's coming in to sit by you and to spend the morning talking to you. All of a sudden, your silence and solitude is gone. Or let's say you're a parent of young children. The same thing, you think the only way I'm going to get some silence is to, to get up before anyone else is awake. And so you get up early, you make a big cup of coffee, 
You go and you sit on the couch, you turn on the light, a breath of just relaxation, I've made it. And then you hear the sound of the feet of your three-year-old coming down the hall. And you begin to realize your dream of silence is gone. Your whole day has now changed. Your morning is moving fast because here comes this little person who wants to spend time with you. How would you, how would we respond in those situations? Knowing myself, I think I would be irritated, impatient perhaps, frustrated, probably many of us, at least internally, might even be angry. All I wanted was some time to myself. But what about Jesus? How would he respond Seeking to go to this remote place, and now there's a great crowd. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 14. He had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on the crowd. This is truly remarkable. Instead of rest and silence, there's a crowd surrounding him with so many needs, but Jesus didn't send them away. He didn't say, Look, I mean, I need some time alone. He didn't say, if you come back tomorrow, then we'll handle this. No, from the depth of who he was, Jesus showed compassion. A fountain of compassion overflows from Jesus. He demonstrates his compassion by healing their sick, we're told. So by bringing restoration to the broken, by bringing healing to the hurting. And although it's not mentioned here, based on what we've seen Jesus do so far in the gospel accounts, and based on what the other accounts of the same miracle tell us, it seems that Jesus also taught them. So he heals and he teaches. Both of those actions demonstrating this compassion. Friends, we want to see today the uniqueness of Jesus. He has compassion unlike any other. His very nature is to be compassionate. That is his heart. And we've already seen this in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking through this compassionate heart of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. We saw this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We saw a glimpse of this compassion in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, though it doesn't use the word compassion. It's clearly compassion driving Jesus. Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is full of compassion. And we don't have to look very far or closely in our world to see that our world is lacking in compassion. Compassionate acts stick out in our world because they're so rare. We take note of them because they're so unusual. Friends, Jesus, the unique Savior, came to provide compassion. And no other world religion promises a compassionate Savior. 
Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give a part of your Sunday morning to be with us. And we so want you to see what Jesus is really like. There are many impressions that we might have of Jesus or that you might have, maybe based on what you've heard in culture or sadly the impression that we as Christians have given. Friend, this is who Jesus is. He is full of compassion. And in particular, he shows this compassion, especially to the hurting, the broken, the exhausted, the harassed. For those of us who are Christians, I wonder when you think of Jesus regularly, do you think of him as being compassionate? And in particular, do you think of him as being compassionate to you. I'm sure you would say, yes, I think Jesus is compassionate. But do you think of him showing compassion to you when you are struggling, hurting, exhausted, in great need? Friend, when you are harassed and helpless, Jesus has compassion for you. When you're weary and heavy laden, Jesus has rest, compassion for you. So if you need compassion today, come to Jesus, the compassionate Savior. But then second, we see in our text, satisfaction provided. So we see that Jesus was healing the people and teaching, and evidently much of the day passes by. So the disciples come to Jesus, look down at verse 15, they come to Jesus and they say this, they say, this is a desolate place, the day is now over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So clearly, however long Jesus is with them, it's been a lengthy time, healing and teaching. Jesus, it seems, is a long-winded preacher. Now, I think my preaching is often quite long, but so far, I've never gotten us to the evening. There's always next week, but so far, I've not preached all the way into the evening. But here Jesus preaches, serves. The disciples come and it's, it's honestly a very helpful, logical thing that they're saying. Like, look, Jesus, there's a lot of people here. It's evening. These people need to eat. We should send everybody away before it gets too late. It's a very straightforward, helpful thing that some assistants, which is what they would do, should say. But look at Jesus' response, verse 16. Jesus says to the disciples, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. To his apprentices, to his disciples, he says, you guys handle this. You guys feed this crowd. The disciples, though, explain the situation. Maybe they look around to see what do we have, but we see their answer, verse 17, we have only five loaves and two fish. The disciples are clearly unable to come anywhere near feeding the crowd. They didn't have enough to feed the 12 of them, much less feed the thousands. So here Jesus was asking his disciples to do the impossible. He's asking them to do and serving the people something way beyond their means. And the disciples realize this. They've done the math. Thousands of hungry people, basically no food. It meant they should send the people away. And though their math made sense from the human perspective, they were leaving out one very important factor. They couldn't feed them, 
But Jesus was with them. Jesus could. So we see Jesus take action. Look down at verse 18. Jesus says, bring them here to me, the bread and the fish. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And the bread and the fish here were just the normal staples of their diet. So this was nothing fancy. This isn't like, you know, we have a banquet in Boston and we, we serve lobster to everyone. This wasn't lobster. This was just like the normal meal of the day. Miraculously, though, multiply. From five loaves and two fish to feeding thousands. The, the disciples play the role of distributing this. And the entire crowd eats and they're fully satisfied. This wasn't simply like a snack just to tide them over. We have children's ministry at the nine o'clock service downstairs, and so, so you know, often they'll give the kids a snack. It's not intended to be a meal, although some of the kids, I think, eat enough goldfish, it could be considered a meal, but, but it's just something to sort of tide them over, just to get from breakfast until lunch. That's not what Jesus does. He, he doesn't simply give them a snack, but he gives enough that they're fully satisfied. So out of compassion, Jesus satisfies this very just basic but real need. I mean, their life has not changed forever by this need, but it was a real need that they had of this meal. But Jesus not only provides, but there's leftovers. Twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. So more than enough to feed the crowd, and they have more left over than even what they started with. Jesus is the one who is able to provide, and even to provide in abundance. Now, this important miracle of bread in the wilderness very likely would have brought to mind for the Jewish people who were partaking of this some some stories in their history. The high point in the history of God's people would have come to mind. And this is when God's people had been enslaved in Egypt. And God delivered them. He saved them. He brought them out in what we call the Exodus. And so God delivers them. He brings them out, Moses leading them. But very long, very shortly after they, they come out there, that they don't have food and they begin to grumble. So God graciously provides for them bread from heaven. Out of nothing, he provides to them what we call manna. And he would do so day after day after day, bread in the wilderness. And so here, as we've already seen numerous times in Matthew, that there are echoes of that as Jesus is now the new and greater Moses, who's come to lead a, a much greater exodus, the ultimate exodus, deliverance, salvation, and he is making a new people as he leads them. This simple feast of bread and fish that Jesus provides also points to a promised feast that is to come. God's prophets had prepared the way, pointing to a Messiah, a promised one, a deliverer who would come. In the midst of those numerous promises, there was also a promise of what we call a messianic banquet, a great banquet with this Messiah. 
We hear a description of it in Isaiah 25. Listen to Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this was a promised feast that the Messiah would provide. But this future banquet would not come on the first coming of the Messiah. That's what we're seeing in Matthew. Jesus, God the Son, fully God and fully flesh, comes on this first coming But after his death and resurrection, he's ascended to be with the Father, but he will return again. But it's on the second coming, that is when this messianic banquet will be experienced. And notice how much greater that banquet is. For it says that banquet is for all peoples. The banquet in the wilderness was Jesus and just a few. But this future banquet is for people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And this future banquet will last forever and will be marked by joy and no sorrow because Jesus, the Messiah, will destroy this great enemy. This described here in vivid language, this covering that's been cast over all nations, this veil that is spread over all nations. What is it? He will swallow up, we're told, death forever. Jesus conquers death. Jesus, the Messiah, will wipe away all tears. There will be no more tears, and we will enjoy fellowship with God forever. So friends, this is what Jesus, the Messiah, has promised will be our experience in the future for all who trust in Christ. And we are invited to this, and we're brought into the mission of extending this invitation to others. Listen to the invitation, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your label for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Friends, a beautiful invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come. To the waters, and very importantly, he who has no money, he says, come buy and eat. Now, if we're not listening closely, we think he's saying we have to buy our way into this, but he says, buy with no money, without money, without price. So, so we're not buying. In fact, if you try to buy your way in, that's the one way you can't get into the banquet. But we receive this free gift held out to any and all. So friend, that's the invitation to you, come and eat. Come and drink. And as Christians, that's the invitation we extend to others. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. Are you hungry? Come to Jesus. And the banquet is free because Jesus, our Savior, has paid for it in full. 
He paid every part of what it would take for this banquet through Jesus coming, the perfect son of God, living a sinless life, walking this earth not marked by sinful anger like we so often have, not marked by impatience with others, but instead marked by compassion and love, mercy and grace. And then this perfect son of God would go to the cross in the place of sinners like us. He was died, he buried, raised on the third day to conquer death, to provide the way for us to be free of death in this future day. And all of this, a free gift held out to any and all who'd receive it by faith. Now on this day in the wilderness, Jesus met a very real physical need. The people that day felt a feeling we've all had, and that is hunger, which is a pointer God has given to us. He's created our body so we feel hungry to remind us to eat. So the hunger points to a real need that is satisfied by food. So on that day, Jesus met a real need, physical hunger with physical bread. We also see in the scriptures there is a deeper hunger, a deeper longing, that like physical hunger is intended to help us to see our need. So we feel this internal longing. We might use a variety of ways to describe it, but but a a longing to address an emptiness, a, a lack of satisfaction, a longing for something else within. Friends, God has made us that way, placing that spiritual hunger, we would say, inside, because there is something provided by God to satisfy it. And as I mentioned at the beginning, every one of us is trying to find satisfaction. And so we try to fulfill that void in our life, sometimes by success. If I just climb the ladder high enough, maybe that will satisfy. Or it's achievement. If I have enough accolades or enough degrees, maybe that will satisfy. Or for some, it's relationships. If I find just the right Friendship, or if I find marriage, or if I have children, then that perhaps will satisfy. Or some of us find it in, in just finding sexual urges fulfilled, we think that will satisfy. Or some in the accumulating of things, if I just have enough, or enough security, or the biggest, or the latest, maybe that will satisfy. Or some of us think satisfaction is found if I just fully express all that I feel, all that I desire, no matter what, with no bounds, that will truly satisfy me, or so we think. Now, some of these may dull that deeper hunger for a time, but they can never fully satisfy. So God created this hunger And Jesus has come, and he alone can fulfill this. He alone can meet this need as well. He brings satisfaction now as we trust in Christ by faith, even as we look forward to the day when finally full eternal satisfaction will be ours. In the account of this miracle in the Gospel of John, we have more of Jesus teaching around it. Here's what Jesus says. We read it earlier, John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is promising he satisfies. So Jesus provides a satisfaction through his life and death and resurrection. 
now held out as a gift to all. And so, friend, I wonder, do you feel this longing inside? You might use very different terms for it. But do you ever, perhaps when you're, you know, rarely alone or in the quietness of laying in bed, feel that there's something missing within? That no matter how far you've made it, it's just never quite enough. You thought this achievement or that relationship might finally settle your soul, but it never has. Friends, we just want you to know Jesus has more for us, and he is able to bring this satisfaction. He brings satisfaction to our restless souls and brings us into a life of meaning now with him and life eternal. So friend, if you're thirsty and hungry at the level of your heart, look to Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, as we live in this world day to day, our Father continues to satisfy us, to meet our needs. He does it now through his word and by the Spirit. So he does it in times like this. We gather each week. We do a variety of things. We look up to God. We also hear from God through the word as he provides food for us. We're also privileged in, in the course of history and around the world that we can have a copy of the scriptures. So friend, let me just commend to you regular reading of God's word. As God feeds you just a small intake Day by day, week by week, year by year, God nourishes our hearts, our souls, our minds. Take it up and treasure it. I would also ask, friend, if you're a Christian, that, that yes, you've found satisfaction in Jesus, but have you begun to look for satisfaction elsewhere? Have you begun to think these other things might be more satisfying? You lost sight of the free and full satisfaction of Jesus, and now you're trying to find it in work or in school or in relationships. For it is food that cannot truly satisfy. So turn back to Jesus. Repent and turn back to Christ. He alone is truly sufficient. As I mentioned earlier, we should notice that Jesus asked the disciples to do the impossible. When he said, you give them something to eat. They brought all they had, five loaves, two fishes. But then, interestingly, Jesus takes the bread and fish and multiplies it. He didn't just create bread out of nothing, although he could have. When we see manna in the wilderness, just out of nothing, every day, God created bread. So Jesus just chooses not to. He could do whatever he wanted to. But he chooses to take the little bit that they brought to him. He took that, multiplied it, and through the little bit that the disciples brought to Jesus, Jesus did the impossible and fed the people. So in a roundabout way, the disciples actually did what Jesus asked them to do. Because he tasked the disciples in handing the food out. So Jesus multiplies it. They distribute it. The impossible is done. Jesus is the one doing it all. And yet he graciously, as he so often does, does it through ordinary people. Jesus does the impossible through the hands of people like you and me. That's how Jesus still works in the world. The mission of Jesus to, to tell people about the good news, that they might come to trust in Christ and be transformed, is an impossible task for us. 
We can't do it. And yet the means that God uses is you and me. Imperfect people saved by grace scattered into our city, sharing this good news as given the opportunity, and then God does something through those simple words we share to save people. God does the impossible through us. Friend, take hope in that. The call is impossible, but Jesus is powerful to accomplish that through us. But I also wonder, are, are we at times you know, wandering back to self-reliance, trying to do the impossible in our own strength? I want to be careful of that. To say, yes, Jesus calls us to the impossible, but Jesus does the impossible. We will trust in him alone. So from last week to this week, we've seen two different feasts. With us last week, we had Herod, who's this sort of king-like figure, regional ruler, who threw a feast for himself. It was his birthday. So he throws a big birthday party for himself, and he invites only his powerful friends. And at the center of the feast, Herod is being served by others. In his actions, we see the the heart of a self-centered, sin-filled king. Herod has no compassion for others. He only cared about his own satisfaction. And in the end, his feast was sort of topped off by horrific death as he has John the Baptist put to death. On the other hand, here in our text, we have another king and another feast. But in this feast, Jesus is not the one being served. Said he's the one serving others. Now he deserves being served, but that's not what this king does. Jesus, the king, he serves others. And Jesus didn't invite the powerful. He invited all. And in fact, Jesus often invited those who aren't powerful, the outsiders, the weak, the broken. And he came not that they would serve him, but he would serve them. And in this banquet, this feast, it's marked not by death, but by life, by fullness, and by satisfaction. Friends, that's the true king, Jesus. But we want to be satisfied with less than that. Jesus, the king, is compassionate. Jesus, this true king, he provides true and lasting satisfaction. So friends, let's look to him today by faith.